So the elements that have made up my life until now are really strong family values, a passion for um, empowering women. I think really what keeps me going and what I love the most is connection and connecting with people and building strong relationships. And I think that is, you know, that's what gets me out of bed every day and that's what gets me excited. Cherie Rubenstein is a lot of things. She's a facilitator, an events manager, a social entrepreneur, a lawyer, a public speaker, a sister, a daughter. And recently, she launched Australia's first pop-up co-working space for women. The journey that got her there was really interesting. And what's in store for her now will no doubt be equally interesting. You're listening to The Gender Agenda on JA Radio. And I'm Dalit Kaplan. Rubenstein. The boundaries between home and work have always been blurry. My dad is an electrician and he started this um, industrial electrical and mechanical business and my mum works with my dad. So incredibly hard workers, really strong work ethic, definitely my work ethic comes from them undoubtedly. Um, And they ran the kind of secretarial reception side of things from home. So over the years, it started to grow from the two of them to they brought in one other secretary and that turned into two and then that turned into about eight. So growing up, I had eight secretaries working in my home, you know, nine to five, eight to five, Monday to Friday. So I grew up in a business more than a family. Um, Family dinners were standing around the kitchen kind of bench and just eating whatever was there and that was where our conversations kind of came from and my grandma would come over and say what what is going on here like you know she would say to my dad you you grew up having dinner every single night at the table with your family what have you done to these kids um yeah so that was a a very interesting uh, dynamic in our house um but I really my brothers handled it differently to me, but I really embraced it. Um, I loved it. I loved watching my parents work. I loved being involved whenever there were meetings in, on, you know, on the dining room table or I'd come home and they were in my bedroom. I'd just sit down and I'd listen or I'd get involved. Um, so, yeah, and I, I used to actually work a couple of days a week with them. So I would just roll out of bed and go into the living room, which became the office, and just do some work for them. It sounds like the business grew enough to be able to rent out another space, like a business space. Why do you think that your parents decided to keep it in the home? So my mum made that decision when I was born because she decided that in order to continue working, which was something she always wanted 
to do and have kids, she wanted to work from home. So that was just the way it happened for a very long time. And then I was traveling overseas and that was when they realized, okay, I think it's time to move the business out of the home. So by the time they did that, I was already moving out of the house. So it didn't really have an effect on me. But yeah, I think it was just, they just thought that it worked and and kept going with that for a very long time. But this unconventional mixing between work and family would influence the way she saw her career forever. But let's first start at the beginning. Cherie was a high achiever. And so when she finished high school, she did what all smart Jewish girls did. She went to law school. I had a careers counsellor who told me that I was good at writing and that I love writing. So I thought I love writing. So, and she told me that I should do, I should take a media and communications degree at Melbourne University. That should be my first preference. So that's what I put down. And I was a very high achieving student, always worked hard at school. Um, and then when I, I got a really good TER, an exceptional TER, my parents said to me, you can do law and media and communications. Why don't you take both degrees? And that sounded great. So I did. As time went on, particularly in the law classes, I actually lost a lot of confidence, a lot. And I, I felt anxious and started realizing that I wasn't one of the smartest people in the room. And I was often working while I was studying, so which I really enjoyed doing. And I couldn't keep up with what was going on and I couldn't do all the reading. And so I would sit in these classes and feel stupid. Um, and that was incredibly hard. I found the law degree incredibly difficult. That's, I think, a really common experience in law school. I, I remember I, when I, I think it took me until third year to stop waiting for somebody to to tap me on the shoulder and say, you're not meant to be here. You're actually not smart enough to be here. Yeah, I felt a bit like I was on the outsides and I, I didn't I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, and then somebody uh, actually encouraged me to apply for clerkships. So I just did and ended up getting uh, paralegal work a year before I then did clerkships. So that then started that process of um, going through the clerkships and then getting a job uh, at a top tier law firm and, and then working there for two years. And it was so interesting to me that every time I spoke about it, people's eyes would light up like, wow, you work at one of the best law firms in Australia. Wow, you're, you're a lawyer. Wow. And it was, the reaction was always, wow, you're really intelligent. That's great. And yet my feeling was of I felt embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about it. I would try and change the subject. I didn't understand why people reacted that way. And I all I could think was they don't actually know what the work is that I do. So they think it's great, but why do they think it's great? And I don't, I don't think it's great. And then she went on to become a lawyer, but she hated it. So I was very confused as to why people thought what I was doing was good when I thought that I was wasting time not learning the skills that were going to be useful for me. In the last uh, couple of months that I worked at the firm, I was on a matter where I was working from 8am to midnight in one kind of meeting room with the same clients and... And I was told this is this is the best. Like Sheree, this is as good as it gets for you know your year level as a lawyer. And I thought, well, that 
if this is as good as it gets, this isn't what I want. listening to The Gender Agenda and I'm Dalit Kaplan. This is J-Air Radio, which can be found on 87.8 FM or online at j-air.com.au and you can also download the podcasts from The Gender Agenda website, thegenderagenda.com. We're having a conversation with Cherie Rubenstein. So Cherie quit her job. What were, what were your biggest fears? in making that decision to leave? There was a fear, a huge fear of failure, 
huge. Um, there was this feeling that I had failed at being a lawyer and, you know, being such a high achiever, innately high achiever, there was a feeling of I couldn't do it, um, which I found very difficult to deal with. There was also a feeling of um, not just failure for me, but the, the perception of failure that, you know, others would say to me, so you've quit working at this really good law firm and you don't know what you want to do next. Explain that to me. I don't understand. And how are you going to make money? So I found that really hard. And then actually stepping into the world of the unknown was incredibly difficult for me. Um, I She went to work with her parents while she tried to figure out her next step. And I had a lot of people say to me, Cherie, you're very lucky that you can go and work for your parents while you then go and work out what it is that you want to do. So, But you weren't slacking. You were working. You no, were actually working. That's right. I was working and I probably only worked for them for about a month and a half because then I I kind of w- found a way to, to get paid work with Fitted for Work, which is a not-for-profit. So I I... It's an interesting thing and it's something that gets brought up a lot and a lot of people say to me, Sheree, you were lucky you could leave, I can't. I think, But maybe your mother had the foresight to think, well, how do we make the family space a space that can also be productive mm-hmm. financially mm-hmm. so that the kids can dip in and out yeah. as they find themselves? Absolutely. And I think my, my mother, she's incredibly supportive. My parents are incredibly supportive. But, you know, I think there's there's a problem in that conversation as well because i i know and i and i witnessed a lot of people who use that as an excuse to say i can't leave or i'm earning such good money i'm not going to leave even though i hate what i'm doing and i'm miserable and i saw it i watched people who walked around like zombies at the firm and looked incredibly unhappy, particularly women who didn't know how to say no, didn't know how to push back. And you start to get worried for their health genuinely. And then they go back to that that kind of excuse of, but I can't leave. And you question whether that's true or not. Um, so I think I, I, was inc- I am incredibly privileged in that way um, to have been able to leave without knowing exactly what I was going to do next and had this kind of backup of here's a way I can earn money until I work it out. But at the same time, I also had this, I have this deep passion and determination to really make a difference and do something really powerful with, you know, with the privilege that I have. So it's the combination of the two that led me to doing that. While she was working in the law firm, she discovered two things. One, she didn't want to be a lawyer. And two, she had a burning desire to do some work in the gender space. There was often a lot of debate around um, gender at the firm and a lot of discussion around, you know, we had a cricket day that the women weren't invited to and we'd often talk about the boys' club and the boys would get defensive and I'd talk about the the way the female partners... Um, the kind of power plays between the female partners and and the junior female lawyers. And it was hard for 
the males to understand and often they would get quite defensive and there was a lesson for us in how you you deliver and actually have those conversations because if someone's feeling attacked then you've lost them so so that's a really important skill to have um have you developed a formula no, not particularly. I would just I'm just conscious of trying not to um not to get angry when I have the conversation and also to be able to have a joke about it. Because often and I have this um in my house where over the years I've I've encouraged feminism in the household with my boyfriend and housemates and they like that they, they they understand now, they get it and they're they're in agreement with me with a lot of the discussions that we have, but they still like to to push the boundaries and they like to joke about it and see if I'll 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 respond. So there's a I think it's important to be able to joke about it and and not, you know, it's a serious conversation, but I think if you take it too seriously then people people start to yeah, back away and you then, you, you know, you kind of get boxed as, oh, you're still, feminists are still crazy and bra burning and, and all of that stereotype. She went on the hunt for some ideas about what she could do next. She had coffee with anyone who would agree to sit with her and pick their brain about what was out there in the gender world. She found these meetings so inspiring that she established an initiative called Think Big, where she invited interesting and inspiring speakers to talk to a group of women about their careers, family, and anything else, really. Think Big was great, but soon another idea began to germinate in her mind. Shereen knew she wanted to inspire others. She knew she wanted to provide a space for female entrepreneurs to work and create. And she knew that there was nothing out there. Eventually, she found a business partner, and together they launched One Roof. Tell me about the name. Uh, oh, the name, it took a long time to come up with a name. The name, um, it, it symbolises that you can kind of have all the things that you need under one roof. So one roof is pop-up co-working spaces for female entrepreneurs and it's about creating, we, we actually run them in Airbnb listed homes and it's about creating a beautiful home environment where female entrepreneurs can come and get all the things that are important to them and that they need to really activate their ideas and to thrive under one roof. Once again, Cherie was blurring the boundaries between home and work. But it's interesting that you chose a home environment. Why was that conscious? It is interesting um, and it is, it is a conscious decision because we feel – I work in a co-working space at the moment. There are lots of co-working spaces around, but a lot of those spaces are still either quite male-centric – what does that mean for it to be male-centric? Majority of the people there are male. It has a very male feel to it. Um, one of the girls who actually came to our space, she calls it the Dorito Club because she says she works in a co-working space and she says it's full of male tech, techie males who are on their computers, who are eating Doritos and who are playing table tennis. And there's just a... F uh, um, 
you you feel like an outsider as a woman being there. And that was that was her words entirely. So there's there's that um, element to it, and there's also the feeling that these places are still offices, and offices are still they still have an association of being sterile and grey and you know, you still feel that kind of corporate, like rigid, soul-sucking, soul-sapping feeling. So we felt that, um, and this was through brainstorming sessions and research and things, that what women are looking for is things like a supportive environment and a space where they feel like they can share and they can ask questions and they can be authentic and they can connect. It's really about connection. No. So my business partner and I went through this process of thinking about, okay, we want to set up these co-working spaces for female entrepreneurs, but we don't want to set it up in the typical permanent kind of co-working space. So where could we do it? And somebody had suggested Fed Square because they have a connection there. And we thought, well... The city, it's an interesting target market. We weren't quite sure. Fed Square, it's very touristy. We weren't sure if that was actually going to create the vibe we were looking for. And then we started to think about cafes. But cafes have the problem of being cafes during the day and where do you work and, you know, how do you facilitate that kind of, those kind of connections when it's a cafe and how do you work after hours and it just, there was all these problems that that were associated with that. And then it was actually my business partner who one day just kind of woke up and went, oh my God, Airbnb homes and Airbnb is a great way to find amazing, I mean, you know, that's firstly, it's all part of this kind of shared economy concept, which is just amazing. And define the shared economy concept. So it's about, mm, this is going to be interesting for me. So it's about um, people sharing um, what traditionally would have been um, uh, work or, or industries that are kind of dominated by certain companies or or are controlled by government or, um, yeah, so it's kind of giving the consumer 
the opportunity to actually um, create their own like little economies in ways that you couldn't have done before. So things like Airbnb and and um, just had a mind blank. Yeah, um, the, the Uber. Uber. Yeah. Airbnb and Uber are perfect examples. So all of a sudden people can actually generate income from renting out their homes in ways that they couldn't have before and people can drive, you know, act as taxi drivers um, and earn an income that way in ways they couldn't have done before. So it's it's eliminating that kind of third party and letting consumers just kind of interact with each other. I just thought of a really warped analogy. Mm. The first area in which anybody was doing this sort of thing where they were turning sort of something in their personal space into something financial was prostitution, mm. which is a female. Mm. And, um, and I think... I mean, whether or not you agree that something like that should be legal or, or whatever, I mean, that's the side point or the ethics of it. Um, maybe there is something sort of inherent about, not that I think Airbnb or Uber were women driven, but there's something, I mean, could we draw, it might be a bit tenuous, but could we draw a link between the way that female entrepreneurialism has been entering mainstream entrepreneurialism and sort of taking over and this more... Uh, imaginative way of looking at how we can generate income and just looking at our homes and our spaces and what's already there and what we already have mm. into um, something that can can be profitable or, or shared as opposed to this office is over there, home is over here and then mm-hmm. neither the twine shall meet. Yes, I think that's a really interesting point because we see more, I mean, the statistics in Australia are that women are starting businesses at at, at two times the rate of men. And so how does that affect the landscape? You know, that that does change things. All of a sudden, we're opening up opportunities to people that, you know, 100 years ago, not even, weren't weren't doing those things, didn't have those opportunities. So how does that affect the business and and you know economic landscape? So I think that's it's a really interesting point. Moments of clarity really come
Hi, welcome back. You're listening to The Gender Agenda, and this is J-Air Radio on 87.8 FM or online at j-air.com.au. And we're hearing from Cherie Rubenstein about her experience moving from the conventional path to becoming a social entrepreneur and focusing on cultivating spaces to support female entrepreneurs. Okay, so the one roof idea it sounds amazing how did it turn out what did it look like we rented a beautiful mansion um on gray street in st kilda and it's really hidden it's got this crappy board out the front you wouldn't even know what goes on behind there um and so yeah we rented out this space and had we actually have 400 people come through the home in six days and so during the day we opened it up from about 8 30 in the morning to six as co-working where were these people working when they weren't at gray street so six about 60 percent of them were working at home um another probably uh 20% 20% were working either at other co-working spaces or working in, like, they work for an employer. So we had a few groups of kind of more corporate people come in and run their strategy days and brainstorming sessions with their team. Um, and then, yeah, the the remainder of them were kind of working in cafes or a combination of different things. So um, it was... So people just set up on... On a couch or at the breakfast bar or in the bedroom or how, I mean, how did they work? So we, the amazing thing about using an Airbnb home was that a lot of it was already there and then we hired extra chairs and tables. So we turned the living room into a co-working space. We had two big tables there and that could, that probably fit about 10 people um, and so we set that up really nicely and had beautiful flowers and diaries on the table that people could take for themselves and um, had this little makeshift resource center where people could go and have a look at all. We'd printed out all these different f- entrepreneurial tools and frameworks and books that people could kind of sit there and read and look at and use whatever they needed. Um, and then the house had like the beautiful, the kitchen was this beautiful open space with a table in there. And so people sat, also sat at that table doing work there's we turned the bedroom upstairs into another um, co-working space with a long table and put a massive whiteboard in there and so people could go up there and if they wanted more quiet and kind of wanted to have meetings and things like that they could go upstairs and then we also had people having meetings outside so it was incredible weather that week and the garden at this place was just magnificent so we had lunches out there people had meetings out there we had meditation sessions out there so that was really um, the garden was a, a, a massive part of creating this beautiful space. Um, yeah, so every day people came into work. We we would um, ask people if they – there was a really good cafe across the road, so we would go and get coffees. I mean, we asked people for money and then we would go and get them coffees or and ordered lunches so that people could then sit outside and eat together, um, which a lot of women said was the, their favourite part of the day. And then it, it almost feels like school <laughs> where you have your, you're sitting inside, there's playtime and you go out, you get to play with everybody else and there's some classes and stuff, but, but, um, in, but then, you know, and then you've got your sort of structured time as well, <laughs> but yeah. that sounds perfect. 
So we, look, we just said to people, this is what we're doing. If you want, if you want us to order you lunch, sure. And if you want to sit outside, this is what we're doing. If you don't, do whatever you want. Um, and some people, some people said we didn't do enough of that, which is really interesting. Some people wanted us, one girl said to us, oh, you know, you could have gotten everybody to stand up when we first walked in and introduced ourselves. And so then it would kind of alleviate the awkwardness. And, and I was thinking, you know, we did so much and people still want more of that facilitation. So it's an interesting balance, um, but we were very, you know, do whatever you want. This is just what we're offering or what we're doing. And these are the things that are going on. Um, and at three o'clock every day, we ran a kind of brainstorming knowledge sharing session and a different person um, facilitated that each day. So we actually had two corporates come in on Monday. We had Picture Partners, which is a accounting firm come and these two women like senior um, women um, came and just facilitated a discussion and asked the women at the table questions and what are their challenges and what are they trying to work through. We had NAB come the second day and talk about your finances and what it's like going to the bank to open up a business account and building a relationship with the bank. And um, yeah, that, that was really interesting. And then the rest of the week, it was established entrepreneurs coming and just facilitating discussions. Um, and Could you give me an example of some of those? Yeah. So on the Friday, we had this woman, her name is... Suzanne and she runs the Connection Exchange. So she is a business, she's a coach. She does a lot of business coaching and running events. And so she, um, we actually had 30 women sitting around a table in the garden for this discussion, which was amazing. And she she led the discussion around pricing structures. So asking people, so firstly, everybody went around and said who they are, what their business or idea is. And then she said, I want to talk about how you come up with your pricing structures. And so women asked ask questions around, you know, do I, if somebody wants me to lower my price, do I keep my price as it is or do I lower it for them? But then am I undermining, you know, my offering and how do you come up with, with the offering that you have and how do you remain competitive in the market that you're in and things like that? Um yeah, so that was a really, really interesting one. And then other ones, we had we had people asking their own um, challenge. So we had one woman who raised a challenge about she runs her own workshops um, and she said that people come to the workshops, they love them, they give her great feedback, they tell her that they want to come to the next one and then she never hears from them again. And she said, how do I – where's the gap there and how do I bridge that gap? And she said she sends out um, uh, newsletters, but people don't respond to the newsletters. And so the women at the table offered their own thoughts around how you can actually engage that person when you're at the workshop. If they love the workshop and they want to go to the next one, have an option for them to pay to go to the next one there and have a package that you can offer them at, at the current workshop that they're at. Um, and find other ways to connect with them that's not sending out a newsletter because a newsletter is not personalized enough. Um, people are looking, you know, you really got to hone in and, and speak to those people individually and find out what it is they're looking for and then be able to cater and tailor what you've, what you've got for their needs. Um, yeah, so things like that. It sounds amazing. Um
So can you tell me a little bit about the demographics of the participants? What age groups, backgrounds? Yeah, so it was incredibly varied. We had women who were finishing or had just finished university and deciding on what their next move was going to be and looking for jobs. And then we had, so they were probably, you know, in their early to mid-20s, mid-20s. And then we had uh, women in their 40s who had, you know, worked in in corporates or had um, run their own businesses or were running kind of new businesses and doing lots of things on the side of the other things that they were doing. And you meet so many women who are doing a million different things. So, um, yeah, incredibly varied. Um, but majority of the women, I would say, consider themselves to be kind of early stage entrepreneurs. So even women who had been running their businesses or their kind of side projects for five or 10 years still saw themselves as startups. Um, And I think that's really the market that we're catering to women in the early stages of their their entrepreneurial endeavors. Mm. Um, Let's talk about men. What's happening to men in this conversation? it's it's a struggle it's an interesting balance and something that i um struggled a little bit with was setting up one roof as targeted to women specifically and not exclusively because men did come into the space but um specific to women and a lot of people particularly men said to me isn't that sexist isn't that leaving us out and Something that I became quite, um, felt really strongly about when I was still at the law firm was realizing that you've got to bring men into the conversation and we would have women's only events and a, a women's committee and that was all lip service. I mean, it, it didn't really actually generate any significant change, but it also left men out of the conversation and and the reality is this is a conversation between men and women and it's not just about women being able to work and women being able to you know um do the things that that they couldn't that they weren't doing um you know 50 100 years ago but at the same time it's a conversation about men it's a conversation about stereotypes and it's looking at well what if men want to be stay at home dads you know how do they feel um, looking after the child and going to to mothers' groups and going for coffee with mothers and children? And so they're also a kind of ostracized from that world in the same way that women were kind of left out of the business world. So it's really important for the conversation to be something that both men and women talk about. Um I love talking to men who get it and uh, are, or not necessarily get it, but are open to the conversation. Um, but I think there's still a long way to go in creating that, um, yeah, the, creating a conversation that exists for both men and women. Um, I did, I met one of the kind of ambassadors for the He For She campaign, which I think is a really interesting campaign that looks at how you bring men and women into basically into the conversation and how of, of gender equality and women's rights. Um, and that was Emma Watson who gave, you know, a lot of people heard her incredible speech at the UN. Um, and I think that that 
that's such an interesting conversation and, and can be a game changer the more we see men take ownership of the conversation um, and talk about it as a gender issue, not a women's issue. What are your thoughts on that? It's, um, yeah, well, I think that it's important. Uh, I mean, it, it's, women are only half of the piece in feminism. Men, men, are, men are victims also of, of misogyny and patriarchy because there are men that don't fit into that environment. Men often feel that they need to prove their stripes and often that's done through subjugation of women. But it holds them hostage as well to conform to particular norms that don't suit them. Mm. Um, historically, men haven't been able to cultivate the connection with their children that women can. And that's, I mean, to be robbed of that is really tragic. And so men have a lot to gain. Every time I look into your loving eyes I see love that money just can't buy One look from you I drift away I pray that you
Hi, and welcome back. This is J Air Radio, and you're listening to The Gender Agenda with me, Dalit Kaplan. You can hear The Gender Agenda every Monday morning from 10am, or you can download the podcasts from the J Air Radio website, j-air.com.au, or from the Gender Agenda website, thegenderagenda.com. So we're speaking with Cherie Rubenstein about her initiative One Roof, a pop-up co-working space for female entrepreneurs. Do you think that we are focusing too much on ambition and career fulfilment? Maybe, um, but for me, it's a really good question and I don't know, but I, for me, deep down, there's a really strong um, attachment to that. To I have a really strong determination and drive and I'm really ambitious and so I find it hard not to focus on that. Um, I think that, you know, we, it can become disillusioning and, and my mum always said to me, oh, you know, you, you, your generation and you women, you think that, you know, work should be fun and meaningful and, and the reality is it's not like that. You get out there, it's hard work and, and you just got to do it and, and stop, you know, my parents are always like, well, just take a job and stick to it. Stop changing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 for me personally, I, I have to follow. I'm pretty driven and passionate and I, I really just deep down feel that I've got to follow that and, and do, you know, find my calling and really make that work, which I've found through One Roof. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe my life would have, it would all be a lot more simpler if, you know, I thought that working as a lawyer was a great job and I could do that for years and, and earn good, earn good money and have a, a stable, steady, financially secure job. And that would be a lot easier. <laughs> but do you think that maybe we're attaching in this project a bit to, we're equating happiness and self fulfillment with, job mm. even if the job is unconventional and an entre- and a startup and yeah. and in our home <laughs> and, yeah. and um like that yeah is there a space in your project and what you're doing mm. for fulfillment that is outside of titles mm. or should there be i think that it's i think that there should be I think it's really important to not to attach your whole being to your ambition and your career, but to, um, yeah, to, to know, to have other elements that are, you know, other aspects of your life that are just as important and to know that there are going to be times in your life where certain priorities will, you know, mean that your ambition or your career is less of a priority and that's okay. Um, but yeah, I think that that's a struggle. I think that that's a struggle that probably a lot of women have um, that, def- you know, if if career defines who you are and then you're not pursuing your career at the time, then who are you? It's it's a really difficult thing to work through. And it's not something I've worked through yet. So when I do, I have no doubt that it's, it's going to be a challenge for me. Um, and so it's something that 
I think about now and I, I think, yeah, that it's a good point that you make that how can you how can one roof and, and focus on female entrepreneurship also bring in the concept of defining who you are outside of your your business and, and your ambitions. Mm-hmm. It's interesting and I think that, that you, you know, what you're – we were speaking about this before and what you were getting at just now is that when you do put more of your energy into something that isn't a, a profession or a career or a job, I mean, let's say cultivating a family, uh, it's important not to devalue that. And I think a lot of women have a bit of a crisis when they first have their, have children if they have decided to prioritise that because value until then was defined as what you're doing professionally. And even though you know that having family is really important, you... Um, you're still nothing, you know, nothing's getting recorded. You're not getting paid for any of it. And uh, and it's a very hard adjustment to make. And I wonder if this focus amongst Gen Y women in particular around ambition and, and career and promising that you can be whatever you want and do whatever you want as long as you work hard and take risks, that maybe the messaging in the beginning also needs to be and building a family or cultivating a yoga practice or meditation practice or anything else is also really important. I'm, I'm really interested in the theme of home, in the work that you've been doing and the, mer- the merging of home and, and business. And um, in, in Jewish culture, the home holds a particular place. It's very special and important. And I'm wondering if your Judaism and being raised in a Jewish home with particular Jewish female role models has influenced your work? Um, yeah, look, I would say that, I mean, a big part of who I am is, you know, being raised in a Jewish community and and a Jewish culture and being, having an incredible, incredible support network, um, and having very strong family values and, and social values and, and, um, yeah, kind of creating and cultivating experiences that are around food and around community. So I think that plays a huge – it does play a big part in, in um, who I am and, and what my – you know, what I'm trying to create. Um, and I do think that – yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but there is that element of home that is also really, really strong and, and – um, a, a bit of a focal point in Jewish families and Jewish culture that um, I think, yeah, it, it symbolizes that kind of connection, that, that beautiful connection that we're trying to create with One Roof and that we feel that home environment fosters. Do you keep all your stars from your studio on Melrose Avenue You've lost all your assets of in life 